Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time for the Negative Positives Podcast, coming to you live out of the Gutter Man Cave in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. And now, here are your hosts, Andre Dominguez and Mike Gutterman. Hello and welcome to the Negative Positives Podcast, episode number 210. I'm your host, Mike Gutterman, coming to you from the Gutterman Cave in Louisville, Kentucky. And it is a Sunday night, and as always, we have a guest. Uh, well, sort of a guest. We'll, we'll we'll see about that in a second. But also, that means everyone's favorite co-captain of the podcast, Mr. Andre Dominguez, all the way out in Los Angeles, California, has joined us. How are you tonight, Andre? Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> uh, my voice is a, is a little groggy from a, quite a long, uh, not only week, and a whole week of film photography goodness and uh, a lot of... A lot of late nights, a lot of a lot of partying, a lot of whiskey has has turned my voice into a a smooth gravelly tone. Uh, <laughs> perhaps you know I'm not gonna say reminiscent, but you know the closest thing I'll ever get to Ted Vieira. Yeah, man, <laughs> that's a strong strong statement there, Andre. Actually, what it really is, Andre, uh, folks, everyone, uh, a round of applause. John, uh, Andre has finally hit puberty, and his voice has changed. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> that could be it. That could be. It. <laughs> So, uh, uh, and when I say uh, a, a sort of a guest, I can't really call him a guest anymore. I think we've kind of uh, uh, christened him the, the cabin boy of the podcast uh, because he makes regular appearances on here now. We're very glad about that because that means uh, every once in a while, about once a month, we have someone who actually knows what he's talking about or at least somebody that knows uh, – how to uh, piss off a good member, a good portion of our audience, and that would be that'd be Mr. M from emulsive.org. Uh, M, how are you tonight? Ooh, morning. Um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. I I, I don't have uh, Andre's uh, distinctive gravel uh, in my voice today, <laughs> um, but I, I I do have a cup of coffee in my hands, so win oh, some, you lose some. <laughs> All right, and. Uh, <coughs> This is, of course, the segment where we like to kind of get into uh, what we did this week. But uh, before we get into that, there's a couple of um, a little shout outs or little uh, things I want to get out here. Uh, first one is Neil Piper and Andrew Bartram. Uh, both of them wanted to kind of participate in the worldwide uh, pinhole day uh, that's coming, it's coming up on uh, uh, Sunday, April 28th. But since they cannot attend it, which is taking place in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, here in the USA, uh, they have decided to do their own little uh, worldwide pinhole day, Boston, UK, a, a, a worldwide pinhole day meetup in and I guess, uh, M, like M said, the original Boston, is that what we're going with? But uh, in the UK. So, yep. uh, yeah, and you can find that information about that if you want to join them for Worldwide Pinho Day on April 28th um, at 10.30 a.m. in Boston, UK. You can find all that information on the, uh, the website photowalk.me and just uh, kind of uh, look down in the April events and you'll see WWPD Boston UK and find all the information to join uh, Andrew Bartram and Neil Piper uh, Andrew of the Lensless Podcast and Neil Piper of Soot and Whitewash Podcast uh, uh, all their information about doing a little little meetup uh, worldwide pinhole day meetup in the UK Boston UK that is and um, one other thing uh, a little uh, 
public service announcement to get out is uh, Andrew Bartram also hit me up and kind of gave me a, a heads up that a, a new podcast is coming uh, uh, that's going to be put on by him and uh, Mr. Simon Forster from um, – uh, from a Classic Lensless podcast. So you're going to have Andrew from Lensless and Simon Forster from Cla- uh, Classic Lensless <laughs> Classic Lenses podcast getting together to do another podcast. And they're calling it, uh, let's see, I had it up here, uh, the Large Format Photography Podcast. And uh, apparently they're recording, uh, like uh, I think it's like next, or this coming Friday, I believe. So it shouldn't be too much longer after that. You'll see a new podcast called the Large Format Photography Podcast. So uh, be on the lookout for that. I'm sure that uh, Simon and Andrew will be getting that information out as soon as the, uh, the, the episode is live. And I'm sure it'll be all over the Facebook groups and stuff. So if you're into large format photography, another, uh, another podcast coming down to Pike. That should be, uh, should be kind of fun, right, folks? Right, guys? For sure. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think they have um they have a, a wildly uh <laughs> a wildly different set of um experience and knowledge about large formats. So I think it, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to to hear how often Andrew has to has to correct Simon on his uh, <laughs> on, on on his newbie assumptions, but I, I I think it's great. I mean, um, I I don't know how much you guys listen to the Classic Lenses podcast, but Simon's really probably the most the the most analog um, of of the three of them, in in my opinion. Anyway, he's he kind of tries to make out that he's not, but he's got a real deep desire to. Uh, <laughs> To, to get into it much more so than, than Carl or, or Johnny, bless him. <laughs> well, jo- Johnny seems pretty hardcore analog. I don't know. I mean, he did hook me up with a lot of APS gear here in the last week, so I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know I've if seen, that's, I've you seen know. the numerous space casts. Um, <laughs> yeah, see, Johnny's, Johnny's analog through and through, but I think in terms of, in terms of a passion for, for, for something, it's never, it's never quite the same when you're getting into something um, compared to if you've been doing something for 20 or 30 years so everything's brand new everything's um crispy and shiny and chrome oh um, i see it, yeah it's, it's it's really interesting seeing seeing simon kind of get get into that and you know johnny said he's like well you know i was selling those back at, at central cameras 35 years ago <laughs> in the basement <laughs> Of course, Johnny's not from Yorkshire, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I think it's good, always good too. I like the fact that you know uh, everyone's. A lot of people says, "Oh, there's so many film uh, podcasts out there," and you know maybe we're we're hitting saturation. But I don't see that uh, you know uh, uh, as part of the uh, as really a point at all. Because I mean, you know, you don't ha- no one says you have to listen to all of them, even though I try to. Uh, I have been catching up on a lot of the classic uh, lenses podcasts here, podcasts here lately. But uh, you don't have to listen to them all. Not everybody has ten hours in a factory each night to listen to them like I do. But uh, <laughs> but the nice but the nice thing is the uh, uh, you know they're they're some of the newer podcasts that have come out in, uh, in the last year or so have been more like specific to one like sort of niche of the film uh, film photography kind of community. So and I think yeah. there's not really one that just addresses large format. So I think it could be a uh, it's definitely filling a filling a void. So uh, I, I was going to say just that there's there, there are so many there are so many niches to cover, whether it be uh, large format, dry plate, wet plates, um, uh, pinhole photography, box cameras. You know all of that kind of stuff. I think I think we're we're still a ways away from from really hitting saturation. Um, but but yeah, it, it certainly does look like a crowded space. And I, I was updating my my podcast list the other day. 
And I think I started off with 20, 23 on there last year, and we're kind of we're kind of up to thirty. So oh, wow. Wow. In, the, in the space of three months, there, <laughs> there are another seven podcasts on there. The, the least of which is is that that pile of crap that Hamish and I have uh, stupidly put together. <laughs> I thought I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna call us out on this podcast, but uh... <laughs> no, I think you, you guys you guys get the award for for. Uh, for quantity (laughs) (laughs) production volume there you go that's a nicer way of putting it i think when people talk about the podcast community uh, film film podcast community being oversaturated they're mostly just talking about our program i think so we're part of the problem i I can't remember who i was talking to the other day but we, we were just chatting and and you guys came up we were saying, yeah, I think oh, I think those guys are at kind of 201, 202, 203. Oh, no, hang on a sec. Oh, no, no, they're at 207. They've just released four episodes in the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> it's all uh, said with love. <laughs> That's true. Either that or we just, uh, uh, perhaps we need, uh, perhaps Andre and I just need to get a life of some sort. But uh, it could be it could be where we're at. We just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe yeah, we just. Not, not too far from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh your voice is kind of freaking me out today andre it's just right. like does, I, does it sound does it sound nice and different mike yeah it sounds uh i feel like i don't know i feel like somebody's somebody's uh i don't know somebody's stolen my real andre like who are you what have you done with andre what have but, you uh, done yeah. with my boy <laughs> all right so this being the first segment we like to uh, talk about our weeks what we did this week so uh andre how about uh we usually start with you how about you uh, tell us a little bit about your week i know you had a big week that we may have to like uh kind of go into further detail in a, in, a, in a full segment of this of this particular oh, yeah. we'll, episode but yeah we'll, we'll tease out a little bit of uh, of everything but uh at the beginning of this week i took a kind of uh emergency last well not emergency but kind of last minute uh, spur of the moment trip with uh, Brandon Wright from Cinestill over to Las Vegas, Mr. Ted Vieira's home turf. Oh, yeah, man. Um, to attend uh, WPPI, well, part of WPPI, which is the Wedding and Portrait Photographers, I don't know what the I stands for, <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of like expo thing out in LA that was held at the uh, Mandalay Bay Hotel. Um, and it was it was kind of for a variety of, of reasons. It had been a, quite a few years since the the twins had gone, uh, since they're they're not really wedding or portrait photographers anymore. Uh, but we kind of wanted to talk to uh, some some wedding photographers that shoot on film, have some meetings face to face with uh, Kodak, and uh, kind of just get an idea of what the um, the professional market is like within like pro uh photographers that shoot film um you know wedding and portrait and studio photographers are sort of what we've identified as uh as like the the main kind of pro market for uh cinestill film so we we kind of just wanted um the the flights were were really cheap and and we wanted to just have a conversation face to face with all those uh groups of people um Mm. So that was that was what we left on a on a Tuesday and came back uh, Wednesday uh, afternoon and immediately after landing uh, back here in California at LAX we Ubered over to uh, Idle Hour which is our local little bar here the the little bar that the Cinestill crew uh, takes over on pretty much every Wednesday night 
uh, to have our little uh, Beers and Cameras LA event um, that we were helping to kind of co-sponsor along with uh, our friend who works at Fremont Brewing Company. So it was good to see, you know, some people that I hadn't seen in a while uh, since the last Beers and Cameras um, up at the Stone Brewery in, in more like downtown L.A. Uh, but I did eat, you know, some bad chicken or something and, and was basically out of commission for 24 hours. So I missed the the lunch that we had planned with uh, with Mike Rosso and Mark Delzell and John Fidelli and, my, and Matt Mirage who were stopping by uh, Hollywood on their way over to San Clemente uh, for the, the film photography idea. Um, they were supposed to, well, they did come by and stop by the studio and, and take a look and had lunch with uh, Brandon and Brian and Dan, but both Matt and I were just, you know, <laughs> atop our, our perspective thrones uh, <laughs> to do some work remotely. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, uh, at the at the end of, of that week, we all made our perspective uh, pilgrimages, our journeys to San Clemente, California, out on the coast, the home of the dark room, um, to spend an entire weekend uh, full of about 150 uh, complete film nerds, uh, workshops. Uh, photo walks, uh, beers and cameras pop-ups, you know, just film goodness uh, of the likes, the likes of which I personally have never seen. Uh, I was mentioning to to M before we we started recording. You know, Photokina was amazing, um, but we were a small, you know, analog contingent within a sea of digital. Uh, being at the film photography paideia, surrounded by you know just film shooters in this little beach town felt like i was at summer camp uh for like the thing that one of the things that i'm most passionate about in life and it was just awesome and i'm excited to go into further detail uh in in the next few sections nice nice oh cool man sounds like you had a, a pretty awesome week it's a shame you didn't get to uh you get, i'm guessing you did get to uh meet the pp gang a little bit even though you didn't get to have lunch with them right so i mean oh we'll yeah talk no we good. we we you know, spent a lot of time uh, throughout the weekend, you know, chatting and uh, met them on, on Friday night and hung out with them a few times on Saturday and, uh, you know, shared a drink with uh, with Mike Rosso and some pizza <laughs> this afternoon. You know, we Perfect. had plenty of, of, of great uh, conversations with those folks. Good, good, good. All right. Uh, is that pretty much uh, all you want to talk about at this point until we get dive deeper into that? Yeah, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to give away uh, too many details just yet. <laughs> Perfect. All right, uh, M, how are you? Uh, how how's your week been? Uh, what do you? Uh, what do you? What, what, what do you got going on? What's been happening? M, we lose him. Oh, there you go. Oh, I'm still here. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> I just um, saw the little mute icon on his like, <laughs> on his yeah. uh, on his uh, profile picture come off. Apologies, apologies. I've, I'm trying to I'm trying to activate a dark mode in Facebook Messenger on Android. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so apologies for that. But no, it was uh, quite a, a relaxing, quite a, a a boring week as far as film photography goes for me. Um, my my day job uh, has been incredibly busy. So aside from uh, heading out and grabbing coffees in the afternoon and taking photos of cats, 
Um, there, <laughs> there wasn't wasn't really much uh, wasn't really much going on. I did I did take a, a, a quick day trip over the weekend and um, shot some one twenty Neopan four hundred, which is a film I've never shot before in that format. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's 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 quite sad, quite quite bittersweet. Um, I was sent a couple of rolls of that by uh, Sandeep, who's uh, goes by Give Me a Biscuit um, on Twitter. It's, mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a long story, um, but he he For purchased American uh, audiences. A biscuit is a cookie. Yes, yes, yes. Although um, it should be more a buttery piece of uh, dough. But uh, we'll, we'll go ahead. No, go ahead. no, no. <laughs> that that's a that's a whole that's a whole other podcast there that's like 10 episodes <laughs> um <clears throat> but uh yes sandy sandy purchased uh i think a couple of pro packs of the stuff um last year he managed to get a, a kind of spankingly good deal and he's he's been sending a few rolls out here and there to people on twitter just to say look hey if you haven't shot this before give it a shot see what you think and and write and just post some pictures about it so he sent me a you couple were of wasting rolls. it on cats no, no, that 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 was the weekend <laughs> day trip where uh, I didn't see okay. any cats at all, just lots and lots of koi carp. Um, yes, um, so yeah, uh, you know, just uh, as you can tell, my I'm kind of fading away because it's incredibly boring, and I'm struggling to find anything interesting to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I guess I'll go ahead and get into my week, and I wish I could bail you out in, but I, I really can't bail you out, but. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but the, uh, uh, but I mean, I guess I can. I had some exciting things, not necessarily actually accomplishments, but uh, well, maybe accomplishments. But uh, uh, as I kind of teased last weekend, I had a, a basically a mother load of uh, of APS goodness uh, coming my way, and uh, from Mister uh, Johnny Sisson at uh, Chicago, uh, uh, why can I never Central Camera in Chicago. Uh, uh, also, in the Classic Lenses podcast, he'd hit me up uh, saying, I've got a bunch of uh, APS stuff. It's just taking up space on this shelf. Uh, I just need to get it out of here. And he offered me a crazy price for just to take a, a big majority of it off his hands. And uh, so, of course, of course, I, I couldn't resist. So I, I had to do it. You know, I mean, it's my it's my obligation as. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I hate to hate to I hate to go ahead and, and title myself this, but sort of, you know, the sort of the de facto leader of the APS revival, and uh, so uh, and because uh, I mean, it is catching on like wildfire. It's uh, it, everyone's talking about it. It's it's a uh, you know hottest trend in, in film photography. So, um, but yeah, I'd end up getting uh, like three <laughs> three Minolta Vectus S100 uh, APS SLRs with uh, 50 millimeter lenses. Uh, of course, I got three lenses and uh, and then three flash units and then 26 rows of APS film and uh, <laughs> and then also a uh, a very interesting uh, strange camera called the Kodak uh, Advantix Preview. And uh, this was like one of the last APS cameras that Kodak uh, kind of brought out to uh i guess when digital was really starting to take on and uh but this camera is the strangest thing it has a, a screen on the back like a digital camera would and when you take the shot uh it, of course you know the, the it, it records it on the film of course uh but then this little digital i guess it has a digital sensor of some some sort in it uh will show on the screen the preview screen what that shot looked like now it doesn't save that photo digitally on like a memory card or anything As a matter of fact when you take the next shot I guess the memory uh, of that 
of that shot. The previous shot is gone, and uh, it, it just remembers. It just remembers the last shot you took, and you can preview that until you take another shot. And uh, the the point of it was, oh, you'll know if you're if someone blinked, or if one of your kids was making an ugly face, and then you can retake the shot. Uh, I think that was sort of the point. But it's this weird little bridge between uh, sort of film and digital camera, and uh, it's. Uh, it's probably a piece of garbage, but, uh, you know, uh, but it's an what remaining like purist, uh, <laughs> like super, you know, dedicated, uh, you know, film photographers that listen to our show just completely left right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, uh, but it's, it's a strange in a way though, it, it is sort of this weird, uh, sort of, uh, you could tell the struggle between uh, film and uh, the film market and the digital market at that time because would have this came out in the year two thousand. So, like digital cameras were still at that like you know maybe two three megapixel range. So like mm-hmm. they weren't quite you know uh, completely satisfactory. But but people were getting spoiled by this seeing their image. So you could just see Kodak's mindset of like okay we're gonna. We're gonna make it on like this film camera because it's better. You know, film's still better, but people want to see the image. So we'll, we'll put this little preview screen up there, and, and uh, you can just see the thought process behind it. But it's a strange little bridge between those two oh, worlds. Yeah. And, uh, it's a. Uh, it, it's a really. It gets it, you to it, think it, about the era, the time. Hmm. Yeah, strange. Very strange. I, and it's funny thing is, I don't know how popular this camera was because I never knew when they were out. I never knew about them because <laughs> well, I think at that point I had moved out of APS. Uh, and actually bought myself a proper 35 millimeter SLR at that point, so I, I'd kind of left the left the APS for a while. But uh, <laughs> but apparently I'm back after you see this gigantic box of stuff like that. So, <laughs> but, uh, it, um, it, it's a really interesting time when when Advantix was was at, in, in in its very last throes, moving to this this hybrid um, approach to try and grab consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Fuji, Fuji created their first digital camera back in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was 8088, and it was this ridiculous kind of semiconductor-based memory card, and <laughs> it was just <laughs> absolute madness. And um, the, the, the kind of late 90s through to the very early uh, 2000s were, were quite a strange space as far as consumer photography goes because there, there wasn't really a tried and tested um product or at least there, there wasn't a a product which which you could say is exactly what consumers were were looking for it was really what was a case of <clears throat> the industry releasing very very quick iterations of products to see to see what stuck mm-hmm. um and I, I don't think i don't think anyone would accuse advantix of of being anything other than a cash grab <laughs> um, from from both from both Fuji and from from Kodak to kind of deal with this this peak film rise of digital uh, business that was happening at the time. But th- th- there are some really interesting cameras from from around that period. Whether it's the the the, the Kodak DCs, which they, they were selling for three hundred dollars a pop, you know, digital camera, no flash, no LCD, but mm-hmm. still taking digital cameras. And I think it wasn't until I believe it was Panasonic. I think they they came out with this tiny compact with a screen on the back. The the pennies started dropping, and and all of the manufacturers kind of moved towards this as the as the model for the new consumer uh, consumer camera. Small sensor, mm-hmm. flexible lens, 
LCD screen with with some form of live preview. In, in very similar in the way that the smartphones were kind of flailing around trying to figure out what they were, and then Apple come out in two thousand and seven, and essentially every single smartphone from two thousand and seven looks like that: big screen on one side, camera on the other. You know, mm-hmm. flat, flat, flat tablet essentially. Um, but I'd, I'd be interested to to hear from people who were shooting those kind of hybrid Advantix cameras back in the day, and and what they thought of them. My, my, my gut feeling is is that they probably thought that they were curious, but ultimately crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll be kind of approaching it when I do shoot this camera from somewhat a a uh, I guess a, a newbie sort of standpoint at least because uh, I never knew this this thing really existed and uh, uh, I mean I had heard about a newbie a- fanboy though <laughs> yeah I don't I don't I don't know how effectively you're going to be able to take out your your positive bias towards that camera. <laughs> Well, it is a Kodak. I mean, that does uh, automatically get a little, little soft spot, a uh, soft spot in my heart. But, uh, but the, uh, uh, but it, one thing it does su- surprise me though. I mean, well, I was thinking about this as I was kind of t- uh, tinkering with the camera a little bit uh, when I when I got it was, uh, you know, it, if digital had not maybe taken on as fast, I wonder if the next step would have been a hybrid camera that shot film and also recorded the, the, the you know, recorded a, uh, the image uh, on a, on like, you know, a, an SD card or something or like some sort of flash card. I wonder if that would have been the next step had, you know, the market for film not been falling so quickly and, and digital rising so quickly, you know, cause I, I think that would have been a possibly the next step, but it just never happened because the, I think the, 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 just the rise and the fall of film and the rise of digital was so fast. It just, it became unnecessary. I think to have that, that middle point, I guess, but um, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I think, I think the problem, the problem with, with APS in general was that it was, it was designed as something new for consumers to, to, essentially um, try and eliminate some of the stagnation that happened in the consumer photography space up until that point. Um, It it was never really anything that would catch on with pro photographers because because of the, the 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 sensor size you know the 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 film was what 50 60 percent smaller um, in mm-hmm. terms of raw negative for for to, to be able to be used so whilst you've got wedding photographers at that time still shooting on medium format cameras 135 uh, full frame cameras to use digital terminology you then release this the, these these tiny hunks of plastic junk and i'm not talking about your your fuji prolapse or whatever that's called um (laughs) it's called a prolapse (laughs) yeah yeah, wasn't it the fuji prolapse you're talking about the 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 nikonia (laughs) oh that was it yeah fuji (laughs) fuji not not the fuji the the nikon the nikon prolapse um that 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 was a a great camera but i i in, in terms of wow it's an slr you can use all of your existing nikon glass on it but it was it was a complete misstep um from anyone within Nikon thinking that that camera would be used for anything other than a a, a pro amateur, because um, <clears throat> the, the 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 pro guy who's shooting film professionally he's he's shooting his Nikon F5 or his F4 or his Canon EOS what's it doodle 
<laughs> Eland three or you know <laughs> whatever it's called. Well, it's funny. Um, I read a I read a a thing about. It. I was trying to look up some information on this Minolta Vectus uh, since I since I now own like three of them. I figured I should know something about these cameras. But I ended up running into this article that was talking about some executive from uh, Minolta was talking about how the Vectus system basically basically uh, is what caused Minolta to lose their lose their independence because they spent they put a whole lot of money into developing this system, and they're the only ones that kind of made uh, lenses specifically for the APS cameras. Uh, the Vectus lenses don't fit on any other Minoltas, so they, they really went all in on this on this APS thing. And it, when it didn't really live up to expectations as far as sales, it's kind of one of the one of the determining factors of why they end up having to merge with uh, Konica or whatever uh, when they, their first uh, first kind of right. step towards them losing an independence, sort of. So yeah. I was kind of interesting. It, 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 it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. There's, there's, the end of film is coming. It's been, it's, it's been, uh, it, well, the end of film as the choice of the majority photographically is coming. Um, digital cameras have already been around for, for, uh, 10, 15 years at this point. The writing is on the wall mm. and, Suddenly it's like, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Minolta, right. I'm going to, I'm going to release a camera here, which is highly limited, uses a <laughs> brand new unproven, um, uh, film method. I've got no idea how long this film is going to, is going to be around for, you know, spoiler alert, it's about five years. Um, <laughs> oh, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to make a completely new ecosystem based on something that I think the consumers want without probably having done any actual research <laughs> on, <laughs> right. on, on, on whether that's what the con- what, what the consumers want. So calling it the the rectus, I think, is uh, is uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's appropriate. It's it's the camera that rectus didn't. Uh, <laughs> I can see that there's no winning. Uh, we're going to be winning this battle with uh, with you two uh, uh, on the line with me. So, uh, but let, folks, just uh, all this negativity aside, just just know that the APS revival is alive and well, and uh, it's the hottest hottest trend in film uh, trend in film here's, photography. Here's and uh, thing, yeah. though, like I will I will throw Mike a bone here because we are kind of ganging up on him a little bit. Um, <laughs> the fact that the 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 the, the coded material, the, the film itself is still out there and that there are still cameras out there that work that photographic material is still able to you know capture memories on it so we we can kind of talk about the the maligned goals of the original APS uh, revolution and you know lean into the jokes and, and make fun of it but you know, I know that Mike, he may be one of the only people and maybe should be the only person, <laughs> um, you know, recording his, his family memories and going out and shooting the APS cameras. I am glad that the film is being shot, you know, because there's a finite amount of it. Might as well use up that finite amount of film and, and, and you know, shoot some cool film photos on it. <laughs> uh, I, I agree. I agree. But, and, and thank you, Andre. But I will say, uh, you know, a lot of people make fun of me about this. And, 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 and you all know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as big. It's not like that's all I shoot is APS. But, you would, <laughs> but, but one thing it has caused me to do, because the film is so cheap, uh, like I said, I'm averaging getting it for like two bucks a row. And that's with shipping. So like that's kind of what I kind of average. I always try to keep it under $3 a row with, with shipping. So, uh, but... Uh, it, getting it so cheap, and the fact that I'm now able to home process it myself and scan it myself, it's just been a nice way 
to shoot extremely economically. And so I'm to the point now when like when, when me and the family's out, the shots I would normally pick up my cell phone and take just a normal iPhone photo snapshot with, I'd just soon pick up a APS camera and and shoot it on APS film because uh, it's it's not costing me hardly anything. It's, you know, it's not like uh, I don't hold it precious or anything. Like sometimes I'm a little guilty about doing with film, which I, sh- I shouldn't be anyway. But um, but it just it's kind of taken away. I don't hardly ever take snapshots on my phone anymore. I've kind of used APS to mm. uh, kind of replace that, and I think that's a good that's been a good use for uh, in my case for it. So, uh, but yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm sure everybody is a. Uh, heard enough about APS for uh, this week because I've had about 17 face casts on it this week or something. So, uh, <laughs> something like that, <laughs> but actually uh, it's, it's because of those face casts that I have turned off video autoplay on my Facebook app. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's cause M, you just, I mean, it, it you, you just, you had, you, it would take too much of your time up cause you'd want to re re, you know, watch them over and over and over like a, like a, you know, like one of your favorite movies. I know. I mean, it's, that's oh, probably, yeah, but um, I mean, it, it, to be honest, <laughs> I think it's fantastic that you're doing them because I think when, when you, when you hit the, the hundred, 150 mark, I, I think some enterprising soul, in the negative positives film photography podcast facebook community group is going to is going to download all of those all of those videos and then cut them up into one video of you essentially singing a song um, so <laughs> i think i think that, that there's enough out there to to, uh, to, to 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 be able to give a give a, a an ai bot um quite a good chance at uh, at mimicking mimicking you in the future so you you will be you will be safe like brian kill me like rap song (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah. or uh, what was it i i I heard the other day it was um there was one done uh for david cameron the the ex uh, prime minister of the uk and the the man responsible for for putting us into our uh, current (laughs) current shenanigans with with europe but anyway we're not talking politics we're talking about (laughs) Mike's robot singing voice. <laughs> well, uh, well, we'll see if that we'll see if that happens. I think I think it might be a physical challenge to somebody out there. But uh, but uh, the, uh, uh, the to kind of finish my uh, finish my week, I did get another cool thing in the mail. I've been in conversations with uh, with Ethan uh, Moses uh, from Camerodactyl and the Butter Grips. And uh, I'd been trying to find out if he had it uh, basically started off me asking if on his Pentax six by seven grip, if uh, it would work on the newer regular Pentax six, seven. He wasn't ready to commit to that because he'd never actually tried it on the newer model of the Pentax six, seven. So uh, basically, I uh, we, he told me to get some some hold of some calipers, which I did and uh, try to uh, measure from, uh, you know, the tri tripod socket. To the uh, to the end, end of the camera, I sent him some photos of my measurements, uh, make sure and that I, I was measuring it the way he needed me to measure it. And he it looked like I was getting about the same measurement as he was getting. So he's like, "All right, I'm, I think we should try this." So uh, I end up getting a hold of uh, one of his butter grips for the Pentax six x seven, and I uh, put it on uh, my newer model six seven last night, and it fits mm-hmm. perfectly. So uh, yeah, it works uh, works perfect, and uh, man, it's I got it in black, so it's not uh, it's not neon blue or anything like that. But if you want like that, if that's available, but uh, or I didn't get the heat uh, sensitive, the heat changing color one of it. I didn't do that; I just went black. But uh, it makes that camera uh, so much easier. 
uh, from an er ergonomic standpoint. Just having that right side grip, which is something I've always wanted on that camera. Uh, I don't, I'm not, this thing's like $48, you know, and, uh, for the, the, the for the, what it added in the ergonomic uh, feel of that camera, and it looks great. Uh, I did a face cast on it uh, last night, of course, and uh, mm. uh, uh, to kind of show it off. And I'm also going to take some photos of it uh, and kind of post those on the Facebook group so you can kind of see, so got, so people can kind of get an idea what it looks like on the camera. Uh, and I'm going to actually send those uh, photos to to Ethan as well because he wants to uh, maybe put it on uh, put it out there that it does work on the uh, the right, newer right. six seven. So uh, I saw cool. the um, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, the only the really cool thing about it. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but uh, on the on the bottom side of the grip, there's this little uh, there's this other little uh, uh, I don't know. Um, compartment you can open yeah and uh, to hold a spare battery for the pentax 67 which i thought was a really neat idea to have a, a little compartment uh yeah. and the grip to hold it uh, a spare battery for the pentax 67 so uh, uh but man i'm super excited about it it feels great it looks uh, looks really cool on the camera it's it added to the ergonomics big time and if there's any like doubt you know that's a very heavy camera uh this thing feels extremely sturdy and strong uh i have no question that the whatever material that he's uh uh, printing these grips with is uh, very strong stuff, so uh, no worries there. So, uh, but yeah, cool, very cool stuff. So, sweet. Yeah. Uh, Mark, Matt Marash uh, of the FPP actually had a uh, camera dactyl four by five OG at the Paideia, and it looks a it was a lot bigger than I than I was originally uh, thinking, but it looks really cool. I think he had his uh, focusing <laughs> helicoid was blue. And he had the um, the cable release uh, shutter. It was really, really interesting to kind of see and, and take a look at. It's not going to convert me over to large format by any means, but you know, I'd be interested to see what um, what uh, Simon and Andrew uh, think of it if they oh, get yeah. their hands on one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. it is. It is really cool. My my OG is. I'm just looking at it now. Actually, it's <laughs> black and black and light gray. Nice. Um, oh, cool! And it's it's a little bit it's a little bit bigger, it's a little bit chunkier than the um, oh god, what was it? The, the one travel wide, travel wide, yeah, mm-hmm. just a little bit. The 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 helicoid on on the front of it is just it's so chunky. You 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 cannot mm-hmm. not focus with it, um, and it it locks down if you need it to. I I the first thing I did when I got mine was strip it down and use some uh used a, a a kind of a dry graphite uh lubricant just right. inside the helicoid and it just it spins uh, well it's like butter had to make the connection but no it, it, it's very very good i'm hoping um i'm hoping to be able to use it just as my my street photography uh four by five Let, let's see how realistic now, that particular so I, assumption I is I have a question for you, Em. With uh, with large format being such a, a a larger negative in comparison to to medium format or thirty five, you know, doesn't that have depth of field, uh, you know, concerns? Like, do you have to use like a super wide angle large format lens in order to give you enough depth of field to kind of zone focus with that kind of camera? Or, um, to well, okay, um. My my experience with using a camera, uh, using a four by five camera handheld, um, and zone focusing has has been limited to kind of 90, 90 millimeter and wider lenses. Right. So I'm yeah, shooting like a ninety with a, or sixty five. 
Yeah, well, I'd, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the uh, the OG covers a 65. Gotcha. <clears throat> I'm not sure it supports a 65. But as far as the 90 goes, uh, I was originally shooting a, a Schneider 96.8 on a modified Holger. So I just slapped slapped the, <laughs> the Schneider lens on the front of the Holger, and the, the, it's a six by twelve Holger. So you're looking at the the width of the film being um, roughly similar to the width of a, a piece of four by five, um, and that 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 six point eight f eight f eleven there's enough depth of field in there for me to capture the the world in front of me. Um, however, my my main point with that camera was to be able to focus down relatively close, kind of a meter meter and a half, um, and get a shallow depth of field. Um, using using my my other ninety, I've got an F eight uh, Schneider Super Angulon. Um, using that on my Graflex uh, has been has been interesting, um, but it's not something that I've done a, a lot of street photography with. It's normally on a tripod at f sixteen, f thirty two, f f whatever. Um, but to 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 quickly answer that question, I I think once with the OG, essentially, once I've got my helicoid set up so that I've got my focus marks, um, I'm just going to be shooting at, at, at F8 anyway. And I think that there's 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 going to be there's going to be enough breathing space there and depth of field for me to literally just mark the the hyperfocal um, distances on the helicoid, and and just use that to to, to zone focus as opposed to you know, focusing on the ground glass, putting the the, the film holder in right, and, right. and and then using it really i just want to carry one uh, film holder in the camera one film holder in my back pocket um and zone focus on on, on whatever's in front of me so four shots should be enough for a coffee break cool i'm go. excited to see a five frames with in the not too distant future <laughs> four frames <laughs> oh whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it's it's great. I mean, I I messed around with the the Wonderlust uh, when when those things eventually came out and uh, and and broke it because the helicoid just was was so absolutely terrible. The the, the company hadn't considered that humidity would be a a factor um, mm-hmm. in, in 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 your neck of the woods. What happened to the helicoid? Yeah, exactly. Um, and when I when I contacted them to to tell them about the problem, they said, "Oh, we're aware of it. We're going to be having a fix ready within a few months." And that was kind of spring of one year. I contacted them again in the autumn of the same year, and and never heard anything back. They they just buggered off, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, they sort of faded into obscurity. Indeed. Well, cool. I think that's pretty much our our weeks, right? Uh, anything else we needed to say? Um, I think it's time for a, for a bathroom and beverage break. <laughs> well, one thing before we uh, take a break that I do want to get out. Um, I, I got this strange, uh, uh, box in, <laughs> in the mail, the, uh, I guess it was yesterday. And, um, is this, is this going to be, is this going to be like the ending of the film seven by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's just, I just got this box. It's an Amazon box. Right. And, uh, so I'm like, uh, okay, so I, it had my name on it, and I was like, I don't remember ordering anything from Amazon. So I was like, maybe, maybe my wife did or something under my account or something. And I was like, do you expect something from Amazon? No, no, no. So I opened it up, and 
I was a little bit confused a, a little bit, and uh, nothing nothing inside of it. But inside of it was a a small personal space heater, and uh, and I was like, uh, so I was like, huh. and I was like, so I, I go researching on Amazon. I'm like, what happens if you get something from Amazon you didn't order? And apparently, there's this there's this scam going on now where like people uh, these small companies will just find people Amazon members and send them something so that they can write a positive review on their own items. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, so kind of like a, but at the same time, you still get something free out of it, but you're still supposed to kind of alert Amazon or whatever. And uh, so I was talking about it with my wife and, and my wife was like, uh, well, wasn't you just on a previous podcast bitching about how cold you were and about how your space heater was too loud and you had to turn it off when you uh, recorded? And I was like, oh, yeah. And then uh, so, so, and so then I started thinking, okay, maybe a, a listener did send this to me. And then um, I checked on a, a Facebook messenger today and yes, <laughs> Jacob Erickson uh, did send this to me. Uh, he is, uh, uh, I've had a lot of really good conversations uh, with him uh, through uh, Facebook Messenger and really got to know him very well and uh, just a super, super cool dude. And, uh, but he, uh, I, I, I had remembered like uh, earlier this week, I think he had asked for my, my address and told me he was sending me something not necessarily photography related and that he would explain <laughs> when I got it. And uh, it took actually my wife to explain it to me for me, for me to figure it out. But I'm actually running it right now and hopefully. Hopefully you guys can't hear it. It's nice and quiet. It's uh, it's no. not as loud as my other heater, and it's it's doing the job. It's uh, you're nice uh, and toasty, Mike. Yeah, yeah. My nut, my nuts are toasting really good here. And, uh, so uh, if you but, uh, if you hadn't said that you were you were running it, I, I wouldn't have known. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Good. And uh, the thing yeah. is, uh, you know, because it's uh, in a weird like it's getting down to like. Uh, like 10 degrees Fahrenheit uh, tonight and it's going to be cold all week. Uh, it's not going to get warm till the next weekend, this coming weekend. And, 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 and then it's going to, since it's going to get warm, we can't have warm, beautiful weather. It's just going to rain all weekend. So we, it's either freezing cold or just warm and rainy here is all we're getting lately. But, but since I'm going to have another week of this, this is going to come in really handy and, uh, it's coming in handy tonight. So, cause I would normally be, uh, telling, I'd be trying to get Andre and M to shut up so I can turn this heater back on for a little bit during a break so I can warm back up. But, uh, but now I could just kind of ride it out cause, uh, I can I can stay in heat while I'm recording. So, uh, thank you, Jacob Erickson, so much for this man. Very cool of you, and it's been a, a real pleasure getting to know you on a, a Facebook Messenger. It's been a, a good good conversation. So, all right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. And I think when we come back, we got a little uh, I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about a certain company, uh, good or bad. We'll see. But uh, how you like that? Little, how you like that little teaser? That's what they call a teaser in the business. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, uh, we'll be right back right after this break. Folks, we are back from the break, and, um, and there's been some some news this week. Uh, I guess it was this week. I'm I can't, I'm getting all my weeks confused, but um, and it's a, a certain company uh, doing a certain price increase, and it has been um, it's uh, it's it's been a hot topic. And I got to say on the on our Facebook group, which is 
uh, normally a very positive place. And, and, you know, there was still some positivity even in, in the thread about this, but uh, it got pretty, uh, got pretty heated. A lot of people, a lot of, uh, a lot of opinions on this. And, uh, <laughs> it was uh, obviously it's about Fuji, uh, are raising their prices on their film stocks, uh, 30%. I think also their papers as well, basically anything to do with, uh, their traditional lines of film and paper, uh, <coughs> getting a 30%, uh, price increase. And, um, so since we have M on here, uh, he actually put up a, a post on the Facebook group. It was kind of, uh, without really saying uh, the Fuji situation, was kind of feeling people out on, on <laughs> how, how they stand on some of the stuff. And I think that's where uh, some, of the, some of the hot, hot com- conversation kind of happened. But since, uh, since M started this mess, uh, well, didn't start the Fuji mess, but kind of uh, started this thread. But how about we have M uh, talk a little bit about this? Uh, M, what do you know about this, this Fuji thing? What do you, what, what's your thoughts on it? <laughs> so so what you're saying is because you you ruined the positivity in our positive photo group <laughs> your sentence says you have to go first in the subject <laughs> uh yeah it was um it was it was certainly a, a bit of a surprise uh hearing about these these price rises and i think fuji i think the, the press release mentioned uh double di- digit price rises uh for paper and 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 chemistry and all of that kind of stuff um and then a minimum price rise of 30 percent for photographic film obviously with 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 pricing being different in 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 different territories and on on the face of it sure i i can i can really understand how the conspiracy theories of fuji um just just taking advantage of the goodwill of film photographers by raising prices just so that they can make a quick buck sticks. I, I get that. I get that. Um, and as a, as a result of, of a few thoughts that I had on the matter, I started putting together what I thought was going to be a very quick article, just, just talking about Fuji and, and really from the point of view that um, the, the problem with the price rises doesn't exist with the business. It exists with us as, as the community. Um, and it, it kind of, it, it ballooned, it exploded. I, I planned to publish it last week. It looks like I'm going to publish it this week now. And it's gone from being 500 words to uh, nearly 4,000 as I'm, <laughs> as I'm looking at it on the page right now. And for anyone who missed, who missed the, the, the zero context comment, um, I, I literally just posted um, a, a very small, well, the premise of the article, which which I'll read out now. So it's, as a community, our conceit of somehow being deserving of film photography has caused us to take it for granted, allowed us to forget its true cost, and led us to ignore the commercial realities of the industry and service providers that support a vastly shrunken market. Um, and to be honest, I, th- I think the discussion that happened on the MP Facebook group was was very considered. It was very, very thoughtful. It wasn't the, 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 the same reaction that I'd had, let's say, on Instagram or Facebook posting mm-hmm. the press release, which was, you know, f- you know, fuck Fuji film and they're bastards and they're this and they're that and the other. <laughs> there, there, there was a lot of there was a lot of reasonable and reasoned uh, discussion and debate. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah, um, which, which, which I, I thought was fantastic. Um, it, it, 
the situation's frustrating because Fujifilm has have somehow become the poster boy for um, this nefarious evil organization <laughs> that, that's, that's doing its best to try and take away something that we absolutely love. The reality is, is that Fuji is a business. It's, it's, it's not a monster. Um, Fuji is the only legacy film photographer or photographic film producer um, that came out after peak film um, without significant external investment, without bankruptcy, um, without having to, to kill a load of its businesses. Um, and it actually came out much, much stronger. And mm. although, although the organization has to be very, very um, uh, objective as to as to what it needs to do in order to survive if you if you look at books uh or articles and books written specifically actually um there's there's one book that was written by uh by i believe he was the the, the ceo of fuji back in 2015 um the, the the decision for Fuji to essentially leverage its investment in film, leverage the technologies that it, it had developed, leverage the experience that it had developed, and actually apply those to other um, potential markets was was critical in that company still being able to exist. Um, it, I think it was back in 2000, uh, 2005, I think it was, um, Fuji Fuji killed uh, somewhere in the region of ten or fifteen percent of its global workforce. They ended up saving um, half a billion dollars, mm. half a half a billion dollars, um, and they ended up restructuring the business to say, "Oh well, hang on, we've, we've got all of this experience in making sure that colours don't fade on film." What, what else can we apply that to, which is kind of like film? Oh, there you go, human skin. Lipstick. Right. Well, it's <laughs> it's not only lipstick. I mean, to to <clears throat> to call it lipstick is is essentially um, poking fun at at the amount of investment that that was required to make that pivot. You had people from within the um, the, the the film chemistry side of the business who were working one day on film, and then th- the next day these guys uh, are out there um, working on cosmetic products. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know they the Fuji even used their their lab infrastructure, the FDI lab infrastructure, for their pharmaceutical division, um, in order to develop new drugs. You know, the, the 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 company produces. Let, let's if if you if you have a look at Fuji today, um, about forty four percent of the business comes from um, office products. Uh, office support products, photocopiers, and and other X Y Z solutions. Another forty four percent comes from uh, medicine and healthcare. Um, Fuji is a medical research company. It conducts research on cancer, on Alzheimer's, on other diseases, on viral vaccines and gene therapies and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and they they provide medical imaging solutions, digital, so screen based and film based. Um, so if you take that forty-four plus forty-four, where you know where's where, where's the other where's the other segment of, of Fuji's business coming from? Well, that tiny tiny part um, is what they call their imaging solutions, which is essentially two-thirds film uh, and Instax, and one-third digital photography. 
And you can you can very much argue that Fujifilm is not a a, a photography or a photographic business in 2018. If you look back at the data, Fujifilm in the year 2000 was not primarily uh, a photography company. Um, it, it's a highly diversified, multi-billion-dollar um, multinational company that 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 has to do what it needs to do, which is make money and survive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, but but I went off on a massive tangent there. If you if you actually <laughs> if you if you pull back if you pull back and um, and read this book, it's um, oh god, it's uh, I'm going to really screw his name up, but his name is uh, Shigetaka Tomori, and he's the he's the ex um, CEO of uh, <clears throat> of Fujifilm, and wow. he he wrote he wrote a book. Um, is he the ex? I, yeah, I think so. Um, he wrote a book called Innovating Out of Crisis, How Fujifilm Survived and Thrived as Its Core Business Was was Vanishing. And if I if I just grab, hang on a sec. If I just grab a I made a note here. Uh, so he, this was this was released in uh, 2015. Mm. There's one quote in here. The company's core photographic film market was shrinking at a spectacular rate, and the situation was critical. Fujifilm had good management resources, first-rate technology, a sound financial footing, a reputable brand, and excellence in its diverse w- workforce. If all of these assets could effectively could be effectively combined into a successful strategy and applied, I was sure that something could be done to save the day. So this this is essentially coming from the CEO of a business where photographic film made up something like 60% of sales and 70% of profits. And the book is essentially him describing what happened, what he did, and what that business uh, needs from its leadership today in order to survive the next evolution, the next crash. Um, and, and the next crash, as far as digital uh, film, well, di- digital photography goes, is already upon us. It's the cannibalization of DSLR sales from from higher and higher and higher quality um, integrated phones, uh, integrated cameras in in phones and other small devices, things like GoPros and what have you. So. Fuji had to innovate out of film in order to save the business. They leveraged their resource and experience um, in order to diversify and and make money from, I think at that point, nearly 70 years worth of worth of R&D. Um, that was 20 years ago. And over the past 20 years, they've been continuing to, to innovate, continuing to secure their own future as a business because they already see the next crash coming. Mm-hmm. That's why they're in semiconductor. That's why they're in uh, sensors. That's why they developed their own sensor technology. That's why they're in uh, medicine and healthcare and office products and photocopiers. And they're in absolutely everything. And if if you picked up and removed the the photography business from Fuji and spun it out as a, as a separate company, it'd still be making about I don't know nearly four hundred billion yen um, per year. Mm. It would still be a nice ongoing concern, but as as a percentage of the of the the wider Fujifilm group, um, it's tiny. You could say it's a vestigial organ. Um, mm-hmm. You could say it doesn't add any value to the business today. However, from an emotional perspective, and I understand that I've I've 
said that Fuji has to be completely objective about its its internal you know, about about its business. But from an emotional perspective, the company started off as a as a film company, mm-hmm. and um, regardless of what the what the online community say about Fuji hating film, Fuji don't hate film. That's where their business came from. That's that's where their business today innovated from. Um, if there is an opportunity to to keep film as a profitable part of the business, as a as something that delivers meaningful revenue, then it will be kept. Because objectively speaking, if something's making you money, why why get rid of it? Right. Um, so looking looking at the price increases they are a reality of of this this shrinking pond that we've all been living in for the last 20 years and if you look at kodak and ilford and 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 the other big legacy manufacturers it's much much harder to find details about their price increases than it is about fuji because although the the business may not be as transparent as the online community wants uh, about their film operations, they are completely transparent about saying, "Hey, we're going to rise price, we're going to increase prices, and we're going to increase prices because of this." Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, is if you if you it, and this will all come out in this article. If you if you look at how uh, Fuji and Kodak and other companies have raised prices over the years, well, if Fuji were were really increasing prices um, above and beyond what the market is willing to to bear their film should be wildly more expensive than kodak wildly more expensive but the reality is is if you look at pro 400h and you compare it to portra 400 there's actually not that much of a price difference Mm -hmm. so so all of these knee jerks about you know our fuck fuji and uh, if the prices rise by another by by another x percent i'm going to stop shooting Y film i mean these are these are tired old tropes these are tired old comments that have they come out of the woodwork every single time this company in particular happens to raise prices um but the reality is is that the price is still in line with with what other companies uh, well with with what the company that fuji competes most directly with charges for its products Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's funny. I was I was kind of reading it, and my knee jerk reaction is because I mean, it's I, I make no bones about it. I'm not a I'm not a huge Fuji fan. I, I mean, I just don't I don't have any real hatred for them, but I just don't really shoot their products. I'm I've always been a Kodak guy, and and uh, will continue to be that way. So when I first saw the thing, I was like, Haha, well, those, those jerks, you know, those look at they're doing like what what dumbasses, you know. It, it was kind of my first reaction. But when I, I sat there and thought about, it, I was like, what if the what if the tables were turned? What if it was uh, Kodak announcing? Uh, a thirty percent increase on on their film, and honestly, uh, if it had been the if the tables were turned and it was Kodak, I'd be like, well, well I guess I'm gonna be paying more for film. I just would have shrugged it off, like, you know, I like to shoot Kodak film, I like their films, and uh, if they raise their price thirty percent, which I mean, I hope they don't, 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 don't take this as a <laughs> as a <laughs> as a, yeah, uh, a promotion of that of that sort of idea, but uh, I would I would be like, well, it's gonna cost me a little more to shoot film, but I enjoy it. It's what I, it's one of my passions, and I and I like their film, so I'm just gonna have to pay it. Like that's what. But with Fuji, it was kind of easy, I think, for a lot of people to, to dogpile on them a little bit because a lot of people yeah. have have are already shooting other films or maybe that's not their main stock but if that is your main stock you know uh how, is it do you love it that much if you do then 30 percent is what, what you got to pay to shoot it you know and that's that's well, kind of and, the way I would I, it. 
and I think the the issue with with um, the issue that people take with Fuji's price rises um, and Fuji's general perception as a photographic film company the, it, it is uh, well, from a negative perspective is generally speaking it's a US centric view mm. um, it's it's something you know Fuji I think Fuji film first established operations in, in the US in, in the late 50s late 50s or yeah late 50s they didn't actually start selling film until about 1970 in the US mm. um, they, 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 they always they had they have historically always had a smaller market share and they have pitched themselves in advertising more from the perspective of um, delivery of a image, uh, you know, delivery of a, a photographic requirement versus nostalgia, which is really where, where, where a lot of Kodak's marketing in the 70s, 80s and 90s was, you know, Kodak moments, you know, it's always worth shooting your special, you know, special events on Kodak film, stuff like that. If you look at if you look at Fuji's price rises for the last ten years, let's say, um, typically prices are, are rising every every two years, eighteen months or so, by around about let's say ten to fifteen percent on average, um, and that that's that's global announcements with with variations in in specific regions. If you look at the way that Kodak have increased prices, and again, I'm going to pick on them because these two guys have been engaged in, in their own um, last man standing battle for, for decades now. Mm. Um, Kodak's price rises, at, 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 uh, historically speaking, up until around about 2015, were around about 15 to 20%. But in certain areas, you've got price increases of 100 to nearly 200%. So mm. back in 2015, you've got certain Kodak film stocks were, were literally increased by 191% their price. Jeez. So, yeah. So which, can, um, can you can you uh, give a specific one or? It's not 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 broken down. It was it was it was literally outlined as uh, monochromatic film. Oh, okay. Um, so and th those prices went. I think the lowest price increase was six percent, and the highest was was nearly two hundred. Um, and yeah, they they there, there has been a price rise of five percent this year. There was a price rise of around about ten or fifteen percent last year. Um, there was a price rise of eight percent the year before, five percent the year before that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so th these prices are, are, are increasing in line with each other. Um, the interesting, the really interesting thing for me is not the, the, the increase coming from these manufacturers to, to support their production. It's, it's the relative cost of film today. And the relative cost of film today is, is much, much lower than, than it used to be. Yeah, like um, say back in the 1950s, the, the if you if you adjusted for inflation and all that, it's it's actually cheaper a roll now than it was back then. Yeah, so it's something yeah. like I think um, adjusted for inflation, the the price of a, a roll of of Triax back in the the late 50s, early 60s was was around about um, ten ten dollars fifty. Wow. Um, that same roll of of Triax today is is. Um, is selling for about five and a half, six dollars uh, at B and H. And granted, some of that is manufacturing efficiencies from more modern technology and 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 
uh, and and distribution uh, efficiencies and stuff like that has enabled that. But but yeah, I don't think we can complain too much when like your average American family in the 1950s when they wanted to document those uh, Christmas moments or whatever they're they're paying more than we are technically out of their wallet. Uh, I, I, uh, I saw I saw a vintage advert someone posted in a in a Facebook group a, a week maybe a couple of weeks ago and it was uh, um, late 60s. It was an advert uh, for the price of film plus developing um, plus push processing plus prints, and it was it was a, it was a company selling a 100 uh, ASA film um, and saying you you know you can shoot this film at 400 ASA. So it's this new high speed color developing service. Ooh. So. That, they were bundling this all together, and th- th- this was before this was before uh, 400 speed color film, color negative film was was widely available, and the the complete package cost ad- adjusted for inflation today worked out to around about fifty five sixty dollars per roll. Good lord, <laughs> it's no wonder uh, people didn't take uh, photos other than like on vacations and, and Christmas holidays and stuff. So. Right, <laughs> right, right, I- I- exactly, exactly. And part of me thinks, well. Is is the price for film lower today um, because of those efficiencies? Um, is it is it lower today because of those efficiencies and because salaries haven't haven't increased um, in line with inflation over the last mm-hmm. thirty years, or, mm-hmm. or or is it is it just because uh, we're we're sitting in this in this shrinking pond of a market and the film manufacturers don't believe that the the market as it is today will bear um higher prices i wonder about that if they're if they're a little bit scared at this point to uh kind of uh, you know i mean i think we can say the the film community the film uh, uh this revival or whatever that's happening in film it's been a it's been an, on an upswing but i think i think it's safe to say it's still a little bit shaky ground out there and i think it would be kind of scary as a manufacturer of film to like worry of how much can we raise prices before we maybe start causing a, a decline effect of some sort, you know, like, uh, yeah, sure. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Andre, and, you- and if you, uh, sorry, just, just one last point. And this actually ties in with, with, with Andre's visit to uh, WPPI. Um, the, the majority of, well, I would say the, the, the most meaningful revenue, and I could be completely wrong here, but it seems to me the most meaningful revenue, uh, going from film shooters to film companies um, is that from pro shooters. It's, it's the people who are they're, they're shooting a hundred rolls of film per month mm. um, for one reason or, or the other documentary fashion wedding, what have you. Um, these, these guys are going to vastly outweigh or the value that these guys bring financially is going to, always always vastly outweigh the value that that small hobbyist uh, photographers like us um will bring to a company like kodak right. and it, it's these guys who can technically ab- absorb um high increase high pr- product increases um in in their in their their businesses um if you're if you're charging 300 dollars or if you're building in 300 dollars as the material cost for shooting film on a particular project and the material cost goes up by 100 percent um is that is that 600 now 600 dollar um material cost really going to have an impact on the final cost that you give to the client Right, right, yeah, and of course, uh, a lot of it is uh, with, with particularly with Kodak motion picture is uh, 
Uh, that, that's going to be vastly more important than than us, us small little guys out here doing nerdy film podcasts. So, uh, <laughs> sure, sure. Right and, and Fuji, you know, Fuji don't have a they don't have a motion business now. So, yeah, the, the, their film business, is, Instax Society, is is literally relying on the continued use of film from these uh, professional shooters. True. True. I think I think Andre has fallen asleep on us. I do. do you know what? I think he has. <laughs> Should, should we just leave him there? Yeah, let's, let's just leave him let's, there. Let's just let's, let's, let's listen let's for a second. <laughs> you know your podcast is bad when you even put your own co-host to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, 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 um, I, I, I feel kind of bad now and a little bit embarrassed for having put sleep. <laughs> <laughs> how much? How am I wake him up, Andre? Uh, Mm-hmm. Andre. No, no, no. Let's, let's just let's just leave him let's leave him let's just keep recording without him and then and w- when we get to talking to andre about his wppi uh experience we can ask him what he thought and then we'll just keep recording him snoring for five minutes uh, this show has hit a new low i gotta say <laughs> the only show that it can put its own host asleep is uh, is kind of our, our claim to fame, I think. So uh, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I thought he was kind of cutting a piece of paper. You know, when you get that <laughs> sound, <laughs> but I thought, ah, oh, he's he's doing some craft work. But no, he's he's actually he's actually falling asleep. That yeah. is, huh? Well, brilliant. Um, yeah. So so, so so yeah, <laughs> Fuji. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I think I think there's there is a bigger conversation that we need to have about how much we are really willing to pay um, for fresh film products, mm-hmm. um, and I think we need to have that discussion in the light of well, if we're not willing to pay the going rate, to pay the market rate in order to support the company that makes that film, um, what are we really responsible members of the community, or are we just people who are just only interested in film photography because it's cheap yeah yeah well like okay so now to i guess maybe to play a little bit of devil's advocate here uh you can easily see why when fuji announced this that there was gonna be a ton of people that it just totally gave credibility to this this sort of theory out there that no one's been able to prove, and I don't think anybody's going to be able to prove it. Uh, that all their stuff that they they don't they don't, no longer manufacture film. Everything they're selling from frozen uh, stock that they manufactured several <laughs> years ago. So you you, yeah. you just knew that 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 argument was going <laughs> to be brought back to the forefront on this because it just it does kind of give some credence to that to that theory a little bit that oh we only got so much of this stuff left let's uh let's let's uh let's make a little more money off of it while, while we're since supplies are dwindling you know i don't know right? <laughs> you, you, can't, you can see that you can see that thought process yeah you, you you can see the thought process but it doesn't it doesn't really hold up in my yeah. opinion um is why why would a company that is so invested in 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 remaining a company remaining an, an ongoing concern um worry about making uh, an extra 30 percent of profit Let, let's say uh, i don't know let's, if we if we assume that a roll of um, pro 400 h is ten dollars so right so they're going to make another three dollars on every roll of pro 400 h just to simplify things um if 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 film um as a percentage of fuji's business accounted for 
um, 8% of the company's total revenue. <laughs> I feel like Darth Vader is our co-host. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge to, to be able to continue this thread without, <laughs> without corpsing or without laughing every single time a big, big snore comes out. But, but look, so let's assume so we know that that fuji's film business is is pretty much less than 10 percent of what it used to what what it used to be back 20 years ago if you if you read the book that i I mentioned before the guy's actually talking about film being responsible for about one percent of fuji's total revenue okay why why would that business want to increase the amount of revenue it can get from one percent of its business by 30 percent um, uh, at least from the perspective of squeezing money out of consumers. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. The other thing to think about is if you, I, I don't know if you remember the, the Kodakery, there was a Kodakery episode last year where they were talking to the engineers behind Ectochrome and they were talking about coating events and, and yes, all of this yes. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That was a good episode. And yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was great. It was great. And one of the things that they said, so a single coating event creates about 30 million feet uh, sorry three million feet of 35 millimeter film right Mm. Mm -hmm. um given given how much uh given the the decline in film sales kodak needs somewhere in the region of 30 coating events in order in order to supply enough film for one year of demand and that that works out to about 19 million rolls so so three million feet of 35 mil film for each coating event uh, and they need 30 coating events ish in order to create 19 million rolls of, of film. So, assuming Fuji's volume of film sales is lower than that, let's say Fuji need I don't know 10 million rolls of film per year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's still about 50, that's still about 50 million feet of film, right? <laughs> in in, right. in terms of 135 film. Now, Fuji's infrastructure, coating infrastructure, is sized roughly similarly to Kodak's. Let's assume it may be smaller, it may be more efficient, um, and it, it most probably is. That that's still that's still around about fifteen coating events per year to satisfy demand for 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 one year's worth of film. Now, if Fuji somehow essentially ran their machine ran their coating machines 24 hours a day seven days a week 10 years ago um and 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 created billions of feet of film which they're now just selling um then the question begs is why would they do that number one um how big does the freezer need to be for, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for them to keep that film in? And more importantly, as a Japanese business who's, you know, who that has um, an overriding concern of market reputation, why would they risk freeze uh, making a whole bunch of film, freezing that whole bunch of film um, for later use, um, and potentially releasing defective product into the market? That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about it from that standpoint, but that's that's a very good because it's easy to kind of jump on that theory uh, because it does seem the way they've been discounting or discontinuing film, uh, it does seem to kind of also give some support to that argument. But when you look at it like that, yeah, that 
that freezer is going to be uh, pretty massive, and that's not going to be cheap to run that freezer. You know? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. And I, I would guess any profit that they would make from from selling the film, maybe maybe the thirty percent increase has come because their electricity prices. The freezer bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, they, they need to they need to move the film into a new freezer facility because the other one needs defrosting. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's. It, I don't know. It, it, it's kind of weird. It seems to me, considering that, you know, Fuji's um, uh, recording media division within healthcare, which is a fancy way of saying um, tape and film, so X-ray mm. film, um, it, it works out. It, it accounts for about forty billion uh, yen, for, mm. uh, according to their latest data. And if if you if you kind of Take take data from from various you know source name sources as well as you know commentary here and there on on respectable journals on the web. That's probably a little bit smaller than their their photographic film business. Right now, right. It seems to me it's more a question of resource. You've got uh, chemists and engineers who are working on film one day who are now who 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 then switch to applying their their research and development to cosmetics you've got other engineers who were uh, working on uh, on film coating let's say who are now moved they've now moved into understanding how to better coat lcds and and make other screen products which 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 uh, takes up quite, you know well, no, which contributes quite a lot to uh, to food to fuji's other businesses You've got um, film production continuing from the perspective of X-ray film, and if you're sat there at Fuji allocating resources, and you're saying, "Well, do a coating run on X-ray film, or we can do a coating run on, on photographic film," which one's going to make us more, more more money? Which one do we do first? So I think there's right. a question of optimization of resources in there as well. Um, I, I I I will maybe I'll be proven wrong and I, I there is a, a very strong chance that that's going to happen but it seems to me that Fuji are continuing to produce the film stocks which provide them um, with the most meaningful profit and that that's essentially pro 400h from a mm. from a, a, a from a, a price volume point of view because that's what all of the wedding shooters are uh, <laughs> are out there using <laughs> right right. Um, Slide film. There are still a number of pro slide film photographers out there. I'm not sure if um, I'm not sure if 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 those guys are enough to to support the slide film business for Fuji moving forward. Um, but 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 once again, this 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 chap um, uh, Shigetaka Tomori, he was well. He 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 did quote in the book that um, they they started as a film business and they, they will never stop producing film. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I remember. So do, do, do you remember, man, do you remember it was uh, gosh, it was, <coughs> I was probably around 2010. I think it was around the time uh, Kodak was going through uh, uh, bankruptcy and all that stuff. And uh, things were looking pretty dire. I remember Fuji coming out uh, really strongly and making a strong statement. Uh, we will be the last the last uh, man standing uh, manufacturing film as long, you know, we'll be the last producer of film. And uh, it just seems kind of funny that in, in a way uh, that it doesn't look like they're going to be, you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but probably smartly, they looked at their business and, you know, uh, taken out kind of just, I think maybe a little bit that was said a little bit about it, just like this people 
act like Fuji doesn't love film, but obviously they do. I mean, they know where they their heritage and all that. But maybe uh, they're they're deciding that that loyalty to that that product is not as important as keeping that corporation alive, which is kind of uh, kind of sums up basically what you've been saying, really. Yeah, I think I think if, if you look at Fuji, two thousand three ish, that that that's when digital really hit or digital imaging i'm not going to call mm-hmm. it photography because there, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind there that's not cameras in the consumer sense um so 2003 digital imaging kind of just just hits and it's it's i don't want to make the the analogy of, of tsunami with them being a japanese company but essentially two-thirds of the of the of fuji films traditional photographic film business was wiped out yeah yeah, um, and you're, you're talking about film kiosks and film labs go from processing the larger ones, five thousand rolls of film on average per day to a thousand or less. Mm-hmm. So Fuji Fuji essentially elected this 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 chap uh, Komori San as their their new CEO, and he was he was their their crisis CEO, and they they spent two years essentially dragging the business out. Um, right. dragging the business out of the film and, and moving into uh, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, and, and cosmetics. I mean, Fuji, Fuji has something, something ridiculous in terms of uh, assets uh, or chemistry assets. Um, they, they, they developed somewhere in the region of, what, 20,000 chemical compounds? Wow. Since the, since the late 90s, since the mid-1930s. 20,000. Now, imagine, imagine going out of business because of the conceit that you're a film photography business or a photographic mm-hmm. business and you shouldn't do anything else. It doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It, it, it doesn't make sense. But um, no, I, I think Fuji's, uh, Fuji's statement of, of being the, the last man standing really jives. It jives very well with, with their war with Kodak. Um, yeah. And ju- just from the point of view of... of um, of of winning in business let's say to use that that horribly generic term um mm-hmm. it, it would be it would be something that i think would be a huge motivational factor uh for the business's employees you know we're going to continue to do this because we want to be the last men standing and right. maybe maybe a year after that happens they say well we did it now now we're gone see you later we're folks. done, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're done. Probably we set out to plan. do this <laughs> yeah yeah you know we, we set out to do this in 1934 and today in in 2034 the 100th anniversary of our of our business's production we'd like to say we won and we're out <laughs> retire a champion yeah yeah sometimes <laughs> yeah. boxers don't sometimes boxers don't know when to quit man retire a champion man go out after you win that belt or whatever so uh yeah maybe that's what <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you never know i i just think it's it's um it, it's easy to to pick on someone like fuji um uh as as the the asshole in the room, you know, as, uh, as the guy, you know, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. You know, it's really easy to, to, to pick on them as, as that. But I think if you look at them from the perspective of they are not a photographic company, um, things, things make much more sense. They're just, they're a healthcare organ, a a healthcare and a, an office solutions company that happens to also make photographic film. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. All right. Well, let me see if we can wake up Darth Vader here. Uh, <laughs> Darth? Uh, Andre? 
You there, buddy? You know what? Well, I think I, he rolled off his desk. I did I his like dum dum dum. I tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna call him live on air, li- live on air phone call. See if we can wake <laughs> him up. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> see if you can hear his phone ringing. It would be funny. Maybe his phone's on silent. <laughs> Could be. Hi, this is Andre Dominguez. I'm sorry I couldn't get to your call. <laughs> I'll we'll go ahead and leave my, leave my voice message. Please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Andre. Did you have a good nap, buddy? You sleeping, sleeping good, sleeping tight. Sounds don't comfortable. Bed, don't, don't let the bed bug bite. Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, I'm not gonna lie. I nodded off. Uh, no, uh, we 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 didn't notice. No, no, not at all. We didn't. We didn't have you well, snoring through the I entire can segment. See the, the mic is leaving me a voicemail, so <laughs> I kind of deduced what was happening. Uh, <laughs> No, you weren't snoring through that entire segment. No big deal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not so, for lack uh, of interest, just lack of uh, sleep the past few days for sure. Well, we just uh, – let's also point out uh, that uh, the, the two old guys are up and Adam and Andre is – it's like <laughs> – it's it's 9 p.m. Uh, his time and he's falling asleep. So uh, just uh, – God knows how to bring the party, right? So, uh, and, and and now we are officially the first podcast that was so boring that able to was able to put one of their co-hosts to sleep. So, yeah, man, so. it was just it's such it's such a wonderful day. It's it's such a I'm, I actually have a big list, and I'm going to scratch that off it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Andre, you missed the whole Fuji talk, so uh, I think we should. Uh, no, I got I got most of it. Yeah, yeah, you did. I, I doubt yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The snoring, <laughs> the, the snoring tells us otherwise. I think you might have got five minutes of this forty-minute segment, uh, but. <laughs> well, then I'm gonna have a great time listening to it tomorrow when I'm at the DMV. <laughs> well, so, uh, should we? Should we? Uh, should, should we? Should we carry on, or should we? Should we take a break and let, let Andre freshen up? I think we should take a break and make sure he's going to be awake because uh, we definitely need him for this next segment because he's the one supposed to do most of the talking in the next segment. So, <laughs> <laughs> so all right, folks, uh, Darth Vader is awake and the force is with him and uh, uh, we will take a break and uh, we'll be right back. Folks, we're back for the final segment. Andre is, I think, awake. You're still awake, Andre? You... I am. I am with us. I'm back with us. <laughs> that's good. That's good because we are we are doing a podcast. It's kind of important a little bit to <laughs> kind of have all the hosts uh, kind of you know kind of be awake, but well, a little uh, we, bit. You know. have to be entertaining or, or even or even necessarily insightful. But awake is kind of one the one prerequisite we I think we have on the uh, on the uh, on the show. But, uh, well, but I hope it's it's some consolation to M. I, I know that he was kind of worried that. The hypersensitive uh, photographers project 
prod podcast uh was gonna be you know putting people to sleep but lo and behold it took our very own to that's just karmic re it's just karmic realignment for you isn't it um i i am i am concerned that andre is going to fall asleep again so i've just queued All up right. some music so if 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 i can this should keep you awake <laughs> in in my defense i've been riding on on a high these uh, past few days from uh from vegas back to uh, la out to san clemente not getting a, a ginormous amount of of sleep and i think really right now like my my body is just crashing from all the all the film uh, excitement of the past few days, and um, but I am excited to to talk about the the film photog- the legendary film photography paideia. So if these two jokers are well, are you know, <laughs> I gotta say, all their yeah, did, you, did you notice the little the little kind of jab in there? Em? he's like he's been riding a high. But now it sounds like now he's at a low point uh, being on this no, podcast. No, <laughs> I'm not. Low point, like, I, can definitely I mean, that's what I'm reading into it. My but. body is is uh, <laughs> is not feeling like it, it has the, the past few days. Well, the, the, the good thing is we've set like we've really put out a, a real serious challenge for 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 M's low standards he wants to set for his podcast. Now he's really going to have to go low. To, uh, to uh, like, uh, I think he's gonna he's gonna get off this uh, this podcast a little frustrated. It's gonna be hard to top the the, the level. It, of- it is. I mean, <laughs> I, I've got I've got probably two minutes. I think two minutes or three minutes of of Hamish reciting Weezer lyrics as a sound test. I think I might. Just- <laughs> I, think, I think I might just put that out as a, as, as the next episode, just just to just to try and recover some sense of of crap production values. But um, it's going to be it's going to be hard. <laughs> All right, so Andre, uh, now that you're uh, while while we have you awake, uh, how about you tell us a little about about these adventures? That I, uh, Absolutely. So uh, for for those that that may not have been aware. Uh, this year was, I believe, the the third year of the film photography paideia. Uh, paideia being, I believe, the the Greek term for this kind of uh, coming together of of minds with like an educational uh, type of <laughs> focus. Um, but really, what I what I've been kind of characterizing it uh, to, to the people that were there. <laughs> <laughs> what I've been kind of characterizing it as uh, for kind of explaining it to like my family as to why I was going out um, for the, the whole weekend to hang out with a bunch of film nerds is that it's kind of like it's it, it feels disingenuous or kind of weird to call it like a conference or, or type thing. It basically felt like a, a film photography uh, camp, you know, uh, going out to camp with a bunch of other film nerds out out at the beach. Um I believe there were around 150 uh, people. The event was put on uh, by a few kind of main sponsors. Uh, the Dark Room out there in San Clemente, one of the, the biggest and uh, most kind of just awesome down-to-earth um, film photography labs in the country. Uh, the folks at the FPP, the Film Photography Project. Um, uh, we had a... Mike Bain uh, from Harmon Technologies. Uh, you guys probably know them from from they make Ilford film and chemistry and Kentmere, etc. 
Um, but really, like, it was just a fantastic uh, event over the course of the weekend out there with workshops and, and panels and just uh, beers and cameras pop-ups. Uh, I want to give a huge shout-out to some of the Negative Positives listeners that I met. Um, you have uh, Robert Lanez, who's out here in um, in L.A., uh, Ed Conde and, and Neil, who are also out here in L.A., Michael Bartasek. Uh, you had uh, Barry and Karen Hitterman, uh, who came all the way from Canada uh, to this event, and I, I got thankfully I got a chance to to spend a decent amount of time with them throughout the the weekend. A father father daughter uh, power duo of of film shooters from Canada that came down. Um, if I'm missing other people, uh, oh. My 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 good buddy, my brother, who we uh, we we drunk called uh, Mike Gutterman yesterday uh, at a dive <laughs> bar in San Clemente. Uh, Jade Nelson, you know, uh, awesome photographer for uh, Motor Trend magazine. Um, I met him at the the beers and cameras event out in uh, in downtown uh, L.A. a couple weeks ago. And so on one of the was it last it was last night, right, Mike? When you uh, called we, me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> After yeah, the the whole you know full day of of film photography paideia, uh programming, um, we went to like three different bars, and then all the the old folks kind of turned in, and the youngsters, all the uh, all the <laughs> there was a group of maybe like five or five or six of us uh, headed over to uh, kind of a, a dive bar with some pool tables. Um, got given some like free tacos by some random people that were just, you know, walking uh, across the the street and uh, ended up drunk calling uh, Mr. Gutterman and just, you know, <laughs> saying how much we appreciate the podcast. And I hope you I hope you enjoyed that within uh, during your your shift, Mike. Uh, actually, I wasn't at work. I was sitting here in the Gutterman cave. And, oh, there uh, you go. Yeah, I was drinking some bourbon, and uh, I think I was trying to get. Oh, I was doing a face cast about the the butter grip, and uh, <laughs> oh, perfect. Gotcha. <laughs> so I'm I was being, we, I was trying to be to try, try, trying to be productive, and then you know, a couple of hooligans call me up, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, kind of uh, it was nice, very nice to get that phone call. It was uh, oh, sounded like you guys were having a blast. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to give you know a few shout outs out there. Um, in terms of the the actual uh, programming, you had uh, you know talks from uh, from uh, folks at the FPP and uh, Matt Day kind of telling sort of his story of, of sort of how he he got into film photography as a as a kid, all through you know deciding to to make his YouTube channel, him getting sick recently, and and how the the community kind of came together. To, to support him uh, both financially and, and otherwise through his recovery. Uh, we had f- film photographers that I wasn't you know aware of, like uh, Megan out in, in San Diego, who does amazing work both above and underwater with an Iconos camera, you know, biologist turned film photographer extraordinaire. Um, uh, who else were, were some of the speakers? Mike Padua from uh, Shoot Film Co., good friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the folks from Analog Talk. Uh, it was just so much fun, you know, getting to meet the the, the FPP guys. There was a large format um, workshop uh, led by Matt Marash and, and Mike Rosso. We did a big sort of group photo of the entire group on, uh, on large format that Matt uh, did just... I'm probably missing so much of it. Uh, I'm, I'm here looking at the goodie bag with 
you know, a little sharpie uh, from the darkroom to kind of write down if you've if you've pushed your film. A roll of the new uh, FPP Derev Pan 400 that Alex Lokes had been uh, testing and, and and posting some of the the images on our on our Facebook group. A, a 10% off, you know, uh, thing from the FPP. Uh, a T-shirt that's awesome, like the darkroom tote. Uh, a photo memo notebook from Mike Padua at Shoot Film Co. Um, just, I'm I'm probably missing so much, but I kind of want to like open the floor a little bit to to you guys to ask questions. I know that I was trying to at least at the beginning trying to post a lot of stuff in the in the Facebook group, um, like I had kind of at Photokina, but uh, the more and more I sort of thought about it, it was like I'm I'm missing a lot by trying to to take pictures of this on my phone and I was thinking of like live streaming it and I kind of wanted to just sort of you know enjoy it in the moment you know be be present kind of put my phone away talk to people there so I apologize for for not kind of creating more uh content and then sort of kind of taking you guys there with me as much as I did during Photokina but uh but yeah, I'll, I'll sort of open it to you guys to ask uh, questions or comments and things like that. Sure. Am you got anything? Yeah. Um, I, I guess what based on on conversations with individuals and the the, the various kind of um, talks that you attended, what what's the general feeling um, of people there about the 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 state of the film photography industry today? Oh, for sure. Like, so one of the really kind of interesting uh, things that was was happening, like we all feel the the, the analog uh, resurgence that's currently happening. Um, but I think for for most of the people there, they you know, they may have attended their local, you know, beers and cameras chapter or something like that. But this was kind of like the the level of event that this uh, was ex- exclusively for film photography, I think really kind of cemented in a lot of people's mind that like, you know, I like drew some confidence in people that are like, okay, yeah, film is here to stay. Uh, the community is extremely strong uh, in-person events from something as small as, you know, getting another uh, film shooter in your, in your town uh, up to something like Photokina or this, uh, this uh, kind of event are uh, an integral part of, Kind of keeping this all alive, especially through the the, the educational um, portion of it. Like obviously, we learn so much about film photography these days through sites like Emulsive, through you know educational YouTube videos. Hopefully, you learn something from a podcast. Probably not ours. <laughs> but, if you manage uh, to stay awake, if you manage to stay awake, <laughs> if, if you manage to stay awake, which you know. Wouldn't, wouldn't blame me if you if you if you you know snooze during ours or any other ones, um, but we also uh, kind of to put some more numbers uh, to that. Uh, Mike Bain from uh, from Harmon uh, kind of reiterated a little bit of the results of the the recent um, survey that was put out by Harmon, uh, kind of breaking down some of the the demographics of. 
at least the people who responded to the survey in terms of how many you know new shooters uh, that never shot film before are uh, are shooting now versus the people who are kind of coming back to it from uh, from previously shooting film. Uh, he gave us sort of some indications of of uh, how much more film is being produced now than a few years ago, and. Uh, as as much as as kind of you know we're sort of all drinking the Kool Aid of the of the analog revival. Some having that perspective and and the numbers driven approach from somebody in the industry was also really uh, I think reassuring and, and inspiring to a lot of us. Uh, the overall consensus was that like wow like we we're really really excited for the the future of of the industry and uh, the future of, of what kinds of things that the community is gonna is gonna be able to to do with these sort of in-person uh, events because the the experience that we have as a as a community online is is fantastic but like nothing replaces uh, actually getting to sort of meet people in person shoot together you know. Uh, see each other's printed photos tangibly in hand uh teach each other like our techniques and kind of how we we achieve the things that we do kind of looking forward to to future film photography like uh paidea events like i really want to you know to do some like developing workshops uh it just was really getting me and everybody else there super inspired nice was there sort of a uh was there any sort of maybe uh I don't know, like sort of a, was there any sort of effort to kind of talk about what we as a community need to do in the future going forward as far as keeping this thing rolling? Was there any sort of angle on that or was it just kind of more celebrating that kind of the present where it's at right now? <laughs> there definitely was a, lo a lot of celebrating the present, but we, we uh, for sure didn't. I don't, I don't mean going out and getting drunk with other film photographers, but <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely a lot of that, but no, we did definitely talk about kind of what needs to, to be done. Um, uh, Mike Bain uh, definitely touched on the the necessity of kind of the you know that we're not out of the woods yet that the infrastructure uh, portions to this this whole ball of wax are extremely important from the the you know chemistry uh, production to you know the the large network of uh, labs across the country uh, community dark rooms uh, starting up we had. Um, the guy from uh, Safe Flight uh, Labs over in San Diego, uh, but we also mentioned uh, Obscura Darkroom, uh, Mike Caputo's uh, uh, Darkroom that's opening up in Hawaii. Uh, we we were very much kind of a lot of people were sort of you know asking each other uh, the the speakers there like you know what can I do to to make sure that this is sustainable and. I think that that perspective for sure was not lost. And as much as we were all kind of saying like, oh, this is so awesome that this is all happening. Like we all have that fear of, you know, what if this all goes away? Like, so, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think that that perspective definitely was, uh, was not forgotten at the event. And I'm, I'm glad cause it's, it's getting people to think like, you know, everybody is making their way back to wherever they call home after this event thinking, you know, what can I do uh, as an individual to to keep this going, to make sure that this isn't a flash in the pan? Right. So, I mean, 
you know, it's funny. I, I think about something like this, and I mean, the, the closest equivalent I have is when I went to the, the FPP walking workshop that I've mentioned a million times. But mm-hmm. it is exciting when you get with a group of people that, uh, you know, because I think even with all this podcast and stuff like that out there and the kind of community, the sense of community that all the podcasts and the uh, sites like M have and, and stuff like that, it, as much as that kind of draws us all together, there's something about being in person with uh, people that are sharing the passion. It sort of makes you realize that, Hey man, this thing is, this thing is real, you know, but, uh, uh, but I, I, it, it does kind of make me wonder, like, could this kind of event happened just five years ago? You know, I, I don't think it would have happened five years ago. You know, it just kind of shows where it's at now, just in, in a few short years, uh, uh, that, that something like this can happen and be successful and people be excited about it and people travel across the country to go to it. So that's, that's, that's very amazing. It's a very positive sign in my opinion. For sure. And, and I hope that more of these things, uh, you know, happen in, in, in other regions to accommodate, you know, the, the, the different geographies that, that the film photography community um, exists in. I hope that, you know, there there is something similar to this happening out in, in Asia, in Europe, because, I mean, even even here in the in the U.S., the the from the the sole like space uh capacity of the hotel where where it was being held the big you know uh, conference room thing in the in the hotel where we were uh having the event it could only fit so many people and a lot of people were not able to go because it sold out quickly uh so you know i encourage anybody out there you know if you're if you're inspired by this thing, if you you know weren't able to to go, you're living in a in a different region. You know, try to try to do something like this. It doesn't have to be the same scale. Like hell, like you know, if it's something as as small as getting together with uh with somebody in your town that you know that shoots film, or you know, uh, opening up a local chapter of of beers and cameras or something similar. You know, try to meet other people in person where you live that shoot film. There's, I love podcasts, I love YouTube uh, channels relating to film, but nothing replaces the in person experience of hanging out with your other fellow film nerds. I agree. I agree. Em, you got anything else? Uh, yeah. Um, I think, um, I think it's very, it's very easy in the the echo chamber of social media to believe that Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and and wherever else and internet forums um, are the be all and end all of people shooting film. Mm-hmm. I think the 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 reality is is that there are probably well not probably there are definitely more shooters out there than exist in online communities and it's those shooters those guys who we're not aware of online who mm-hmm. are actually putting money uh into the film company's bottom uh bottom line so it's something that you would have you would have remembered had you been awake at the time um <laughs> <laughs> sorry anyway so um i guess the, the point that i'm trying to make is that it's it's fantastic seeing um hobbyist meetups uh through the fpp through beards and cameras through WPP and 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 what uh, um, what Andrew uh, and Neil are doing with the uh, with the, the the UK WPP event that was that you mentioned at the top of the show, Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is 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 where did you get any feeling of where the 
pro film shooters, these high volume shooters mm -hmm. are today. Were, were any of those kinds of people represented um, when, when you guys met up over the weekends? What kind of um, feeling, if anything, right. did you get about people shooting film professionally, making money so, from it? Right, exactly. So we didn't really get that at uh, the, the film photography paideia. You definitely got the feeling that like these were, you know, the, the hobbyists, the amateurs, the, the folks that, you know, for the vast majority of them, uh, this isn't their uh, job. Um, it's their it's their hobby for sure. They're extremely passionate about it, but they're not uh, professional film photographers. Uh, the perspective that I did get of that was actually at WPPI, the folks that do spend, you know, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 thousand dollars a year um, on film and uh, pumping, you know, uh, money into the the overall sort of film economy through both uh, film and uh, all of the the labs across the country and across the world that uh, are are processing high volumes of of film and and album manufacturers and everything like that. So it, that was a it was a great kind of back to back to have you know WPPI uh, at at the beginning of the week and then. Uh, focusing entirely on those high volume professional uh, shooters, a small portion of which uh, in, in the wedding and, and portrait industry do shoot on film. And then on the weekend, having the perspective of like that most of us can relate to of just the hobbyist, you know, passionate film photographer. Um, but yeah. So at uh, at WPPI, did, did you did you? I mean, I'm assuming you guys ran into some some professional photographers that are primarily shooting on film, or was it uh, like a lot of them doing kind of a hybrid of both, or uh, or did you kind of get to talk to to people that that do that? I mean, pretty much like you know everybody there, unless otherwise noted, is a digital shooter. Uh, oftentimes, uh, evidenced by the fact that they have their you know, digital camera uh, slung around their neck, walking the the expo floor. Uh, but because we were there for such a short amount of time, we kind of were were careful to sort of schedule uh, uh, some some parties at night and then a, a lunch uh, the next day after kind of walking the show floor a little bit uh, with a group of of pretty much exclusively uh, professional uh, wedding photographers that shoot on film. Oh wow! Uh, so they, you know, are are their entire, you know, uh, livelihood and, and workflow is, you know, shooting maybe one or two uh, film stocks. Everything goes out to, you know, high volume uh, professional film labs like Richard Photo uh, and the Fine Lab uh, and that whole kind of workflow uh, of, you know, developing uh, high quality scanning with like their own uh, custom uh, color profiles for for them individually uh as as you know their their brand what they kind of market you know their what their images uh look like because as we all know scanning is uh is is an art in and of itself it's an interpretation of uh the the color negative uh in in most cases you're most of the time portra 160 portra 400 and uh and fujifilm pro 400h um, but it's interesting to see that, you know, uh, I, I don't know exactly how the, the numbers break down, but I would not be surprised if, uh, if not that many, uh, like of these sort of pro, 
uh, wedding and, and portrait and studio uh, photographers that shoot film vastly outnumber the the amount of uh, of money that they pour into the the whole you know film industry than than the hobbyists do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the point it was making when while you were. Uh... While you were sneezing, so I guess well, you, you, while, guess we did, while you were we sleeping, really, yeah. we well, see, you. I'm glad that I was able to get around back to it, and I'm gonna have a wonderful time listening to it uh, tomorrow when I'm waiting in line at the DMV and probably be chuckling to myself and looking like a madman. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's interesting that you bring up the the some of the financial aspects of, of professionally shooting film, and yeah, as as a a hobbyist shooter myself the the mere thought that an individual or or a group of individuals as these um fine art wedding photography businesses are um as as crazy as it might seem that these guys are, are buying 20 or 30 thousand dollars worth of film a year um that's the kind of volume that the industry needs in order to in order to to support its weight um regardless of of how um what's the word here Regardless of, of how much um, efficiency and, and redevelopment and evolution of, of film coating machines and manufacturing facilities um, uh, uh, happen, as, as, much, as, as much as that can happen, as much as you can lower the footprint of that that manufacturing facility, it still costs money to run. It costs money to start. It costs money to maintain. You have to pay people. You have to develop stuff. There's all of these costs out there, and, and shooting. A couple of hundred rolls of film as a as a hobby for a year is 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 one thing, but we need people who are out there shooting many many thousands of rolls of film mm-hmm. per year um, in order to to push money back in the coffers. You know, it, it's it's the whole um, what is it the the CO two emissions of of uh, some dude on his scooter, uh, you know, of, of a billion people on on scooters is still a, a fraction of the uh, sea shipping industry, yeah. for example, you know you've got a hundred thousand boats who are putting out many, many more um, factors of uh, of, of uh, orders of magnitude of, of CO two emissions. If you if you even if you add up everyone with a scooter in the world today, I don't know. Perhaps I'm not making the best analogy, but um, no, no, for I, sure. I, I think get, getting getting a, a a real figure, getting a reality on. Um, yeah, how many rolls of film does Kodak need uh, to create and sell in a given year in order to maintain its film operations? Uh, mm-hmm. Based on based on their stats uh, from the Kodakery uh, episode at the end of last year, it's somewhere in the region of, they're, they're currently doing somewhere in the region of nineteen equivalent of nineteen million rolls of thirty five mil film per year. Um, That's crazy and. It, it, it is crazy, and if mm. you if you say right, there's a hundred thousand people on social media who are shooting a uh, hundred rolls of film a year. Okay, that that's that that's that's that's, that's get still only a tiny fraction <laughs> of that ninety yeah. million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. I think it's it's really interesting noting the the first part of your weekend meeting up uh, meeting up with um, the uh, at the at the Pidea versus WPPI. What I'd really For be sure. interested to know is is how many people at Paideia 
took or are taking the 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 leap from a hobbyist to a professional photographer and what do we need to do as a community to shed light on those on those career paths right. um, i think we 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 maybe it's not something that that will do very well but at least we should have a think about how we can um how we can make the move from hobbyist to pro easier how we can um document it highlight it how we can show people that these opportunities still exist because if we're not if we're not filling the spaces left by by pro film photographers when they leave when they retire then the number of people out there shooting mm-hmm. volume that's going to support the industry is going to diminish very rapidly oh, and sure. we're soon going to get to a point where um where people like Kodak and like Fujifilm aren't going to be able to sustain sustain their operations and what happens then we're just we're left shooting expired film right. for the next 30 it's right. a it's a definitely an interesting kind of question that you pose uh what i'm what what i noticed at WPPI was that the 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 like the high volume like uh professional uh mainly kind of wedding uh shooters that we were talking to were all you know young people like uh mm-hmm. like mid 20s to like uh late 30s like you you didn't have you know your your uh you know 60 plus year old uh like wedding photographer that always shot on film and always kind of stuck with it. It was all young people that, you know, started shooting uh, wedding on shooting weddings on digital. And then uh, both in terms of like one of the reasons why we, we asked one of the things that we asked was, well, why do you guys choose to shoot weddings on, on film? You know? And they said, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of your kind of expected responses. I prefer the, the look uh, but one of the biggest things was that, you know, there exists in in the in the pro uh, film photography space uh, infrastructure in the form of these, you know, professional uh, film labs like Richard Photo Lab uh, to really kind of take away the vast majority of all of the post processing time <laughs> yeah. that they used to spend uh, as as digital photographers, like you know. You, being able to kind of develop those uh, custom, uh, like literally individual personal uh, color profiles yeah, they're, with they're those for, professional for RTL, it's their, um, uh, exactly. it's their, color it's their bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, you were talking you know, in, in the last segment, uh, you were talking a lot about the pro photographer and how important that is in the film uh, industry, as far as uh, the fact that we are, <laughs> We, we really don't, us hobbyists don't really make up enough of the of purchasing power. Uh, when I went on the, uh, the Nashville Kodak uh, film walk, which was taking place kind of as a side piece of, uh, of this big photo industry show, I can't remember what it was called. I was just there for the Kodak film walk. But, uh, you know, they gave us this big, you know, some free film and this propos- promotional pack or whatever. And there were some, some brochures in, uh, in there about all the different uh, – films and papers and it was definitely all geared towards the professional uh like this this sort of uh uh you know um, obviously they were at a trade show but but it i hadn't really pieced together that really that's 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 who kodak really wants to go after right now is these people mm-hmm. that are shooting a lot more rows of film than we are so uh, yeah, yeah yeah and if you if you look at um i'd say kodak 
uh, Kodak <clears throat> Pro Film Beers, uh, Kodak Professional on Instagram and Twitter, they're, they're a little bit different. Um, but if you look at Fujifilm's relatively recent uh, Fujifilm Pro Film social media accounts, um, they they all have that one single look, and it's that it's that kind of SoCal wedding photography. It's mm. the pastel <laughs> palette. Yep. It's the yeah. and it's I, I, it that sounds you know, via, I, like four hundred H look, yeah. Yeah, and I, I I know that that's that's coming across as sounding a little bit derogatory. It, it's not because you you shoot to a look because that's what your customers want. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you can see what what Fuji and to a degree uh, Kodak professional Kodak Alaris are doing on social media. The kind of photos that they're putting out there, and it's they are continuing to build the message of this particular aesthetic and it's it works for consumers looking at the photos and thinking wow i want to have that on my wedding or my engagement shoots or what have you um and and it 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 helps to 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 support these younger photographers in in terms of helping them look at an aesthetic which essentially meets what (laughs) what what the company itself wants them to be doing in order to to get money to to survive i i guess i mean I, I uh, you could know, be completely cool, the cool thing about these trade shows for these young photographers <laughs> that you know probably got into uh, shooting shooting uh, weddings through digital is that they they see the results that you know that they like and that their clients like. They talk to you know because uh, so much of WPPI is also networking. Um, uh, <clears throat> they talk to you know a, a fellow wedding photographer that shoots film and. You know, that that film shooter is saying like, oh, my goodness, my life was made so much more simple once I started shooting uh, weddings on film. Like I'm there with my assistant loading up uh, the medium format backs uh, with with Portra or or Fujifilm Pro 400H. You know, I shoot the entire wedding and then I just send it off all to to RPL and it comes back, you know, exactly the the way that I want all the colors to to be, you know, high res scans and you deliver that to the to the client. So, like, for them, like, the the time that they save not having to edit raw files and, and, you know, spending so much time post-processing their digital files, that's what allows them uh, to to be able to, you know, because time is money. That's what allows them to be able to, you know, afford to shoot, like, you know, probably not quantity-wise as many shots as they would if they were shooting digital. But that's what allows them to to be able to afford to spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on on film every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it, it's really interesting just from a, a hugely um, simplified and, and kind of downscaled version of that. Um, <clears throat> I made the choice to buy a scanner to scan my own uh, film, but specifically only to scan large formats. And 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 the reason why I still um, have uh, the vast majority of my 35 mil um, black and white film scanned is because that financially it does not make sense for me to spend an hour scanning a roll of 35 mil film um, when I can just give it to someone and I know that I'll get my scans back in exactly the way that I want. And I can use that hour to do something that's productive. So looking at that sure from a from it's it's wonderful being able to own the whole process and blah 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 and all that kind of stuff but i think when when you have your process locked down and what you want is the result then paying someone like rpl 15 20 25 dollars to develop and scan a roll of film 
um, works. It might not work for, for me as an individual, but it, it may work for, for me as the wedding photographer who's, who's shooting two or three weekends a month. Yeah, and if I'm, if I'm shooting even two weekends a month, if I've shot 20 rolls of film um, on 645, 16 rolls, uh, 16 shots a roll, you know, 300 images, am I really going to have the time to sit down and scan and edit every single one of those 300 images? God, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's there, there's a guy. Just sorry, just as a very no, very sorry. very quick aside, there was a guy. Um, he's a Dallas-based um, uh, photo retoucher, um, and he's uh, for the last forty years he's been working as a as, as a retoucher. Um, initially in the darkroom, and now mostly on digital for other photographers. And he's he's a, a very well-established photographer in in his own rights. But people have been using him for the last forty years to offload all of that stuff because they can say this is what i want this is this is what i want to achieve um can you do that and then he just goes and does it and if if you if you can can leverage your time or leverage someone else's experience to reduce the time that you're spent doing essentially admin and, and housekeeping and and procedural stuff so that you can get out there shoot and make more money then it doesn't really matter if you're if you're chucking 20% of your earnings to somebody to be able to go and do that because you save much more than that in time and your ability to go out and generate even more money. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, you were talking about Kodak social media and just to, to bring that back around to the pro shooters, uh, you know, when I, when I look at their Instagram post, uh, strangely, I don't see like photos of grainy trees and fire escapes. So uh, yeah, they're definitely not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> not, 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 not looking for me, but, uh, but, uh, all right. Well, uh, I think this is, uh, probably about a time we, this is going to be another long episode. That's no surprise. Every time we have him on, we, we, we threaten to, to break records, uh, on, uh, on the length of these episodes, but, uh, but it's always a pleasure to have him. So uh, you know, we got to have somebody on here that can uh, that can carry the podcast when, like, I don't know, say, like a host falls asleep or something. It's nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in, in the unlikely event that something so ludicrous right. would happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Uh, you guys got anything else you want to say about this before we kind of wrap it up? Or are we, we ready to, to close this thing out? I think we're ready. Um, yeah, I, I think we're all ready. Should we, should we play Andre out with some music? I think, I think maybe you should lullaby yeah. music. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I thought no, you had it queued up. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. I, I again, stupidly closed. Again, time, again, uh, living up to the low standards of this podcast. So uh, I don't know. Maybe, we're, maybe we're, we're keeping it real. We're keeping it real. <laughs> well, uh, M, always a pleasure to have you on, brother. It's uh it's uh it's been fun, and uh, uh and Andre will get to find out what he missed tomorrow, I guess, when he listens to it. At the, at the DMV. But, uh, but mostly, we just spent the whole segment making fun of you, Andre. So that, that's uh, yeah, oh, it sounds about right. It sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> we did we did? It was it was touch and go as to whether or not we'd continue talking or just record you snoring for ten minutes. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, thank tomorrow you. to find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again, Em, for uh, for coming on. Uh, eagle-eyed listeners will uh, will you know hear that I have not particularly apologized for falling asleep, uh, but that's just how we are with uh, with Em. You know, we <laughs> we we lean into the the hilariosity that is uh, is our long form uh, conversations with uh, with this delightfully you know insightful uh, friend and member of the community. <laughs> yes, yeah. 
Well, em, you, uh, go you, ahead. You, you can you can you can say as many pretty words as you want, Andre, and I do appreciate <laughs> them. But you still fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Em, go ahead and tell the uh, the fine folks where to check you out and all all your all your social crap. Yep, uh, you can find me on emulsive.org or pretty much everywhere on the internet as uh, whatever.com slash emulsive film or one word. Nice. And your podcast, what about that? Where, where's that at? We're kind of kind of overdue for an episode, aren't we? Right? Yeah, yeah. By, by, by a few days, I, I have not um, reviewed it since Hamish and I recorded it a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> the, the, the plan is... That was the, the point. <laughs> the plan. Well, I still, I still need to listen to it and put the put an intro and outro onto it. But uh, no, actually, right right now we're um, we're kind of coming up to a, a hard limit on SoundCloud for their for their free version, and mm. and I've decided I hate Anchor, and I'm looking <laughs> at uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, Podbean. So Podbean, yeah. kind kind of just 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 in the throes of of looking at that and saying, okay, do we just do I just go and pay for um, their their pro or premium or, or or whatever it's called and figuring that out so what, what once i've done that we'll get episode two i guess or the third in the series i really wish i hadn't numbered them now um <laughs> but, but we'll, we'll figure that out so yeah maybe end of this week maybe towards the end of the first week of march awesome awesome it sounds like actually andre what he really wants to do is review it and see how he can make it worse since uh, we've lowered the bar uh, to a level that i don't think he can match so yeah i think that's uh he's gonna try to (laughs) all right andre uh where can people uh, see your work people can see my uh photos on instagram at andre on film all right, and everyone can check me out on uh, Instagram at Gutterman Photo, on Facebook at Mike Gutterman Photography. You can join the Facebook group, the Negative Positives Film Photography Podcast Facebook group. Uh, you can also email this program at negpositives at gmail.com. And you can follow this, uh, this show on Instagram. It has an Instagram account under the, the account name Negative Positives. Uh, mostly ran by Mr. Bryce Randall, except for when I sneak in like an APS revival uh, uh, a photo every once in a while. But uh, uh, Bryce m- normally runs that. And uh, if, you th- if you post photos to Instagram, uh, put the hashtag negative positives in your hashtags and maybe Bryce will find it and highlight it on the negative positives Instagram account. OK, so I think that's it. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. And for those of you that stayed awake, uh, a huge thanks. Uh, uh, you did better than Andre did. So, uh, uh, so, but, uh, uh, we will uh, talk to you soon. Andre, you have the midweek episode this week. Uh, please don't fall asleep during it. Cause that could be, uh, yeah, that'd be a little awkward. wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, folks, we will talk to you soon. Everybody stay positive. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> and shoot some cool film photos. All right, we'll see you all soon. Thank you very much. See you guys.
A Gutter Man Cave Production!